Well, there's a lot to give thanks for, church family. I am, I, first of all, I am thankful that we can have a time with kiddos during our service where they can learn more about the gospel in such a fun and engaging way. I have never heard your mother is a papaya before. I got to admit that. It's a new one. But more than that, it's the engaging way we're, we're, we're allowing our kids to see the truths of the scriptures and the way that that's lived out in tangible ways. And so that's, that's a great joy. Another thing that's a great joy is that God has put our church, Clayton Valley Church, here in this community, in this neighborhood, to be a light of the gospel. And what's coming up in, in the month ahead is just thrilling. To, to, it's thrilling to have the fall festival again. Uh, we ha- we've had different versions of it over the years. Even through COVID, we did the best we could to have some type of gathering. But you realize our community, this is, this is an area where uh, I don't, we as a, a church really don't even need to promote this particular event. They, they expect it. They're ready. They're going to show up. And we'll have a chance to demonstrate the grace of Christ, the love of Christ, and, and, and declare the, the truth about the gospel. Our resource table will be available. That's our table where we have various pamphlets that uh, describe different areas that people struggle with at times and, and also describe biblical answers for those, those problems. Uh, we've had folks come into our church for, for counseling over the years to find out more about the gospel as a result of this event. And so you, you can be involved in a lot of ways. We're going to need candy. So the, that candy donation, uh, it's coming up for the next couple of weeks. Be aware of that. Go buy candy. It, it's everywhere. Um, trust me, you want to get it out of your house and into the bin as fast as possible. Okay, just do that. Uh, you'll be glad you did. And then also in the, in the foyer area, there are signups there. And you can, you can participate by helping run different parts of the event. And so be sure to, to as you're on your way out, just put your name down and, and uh, those leading that portion of the event will contact you and, and we can make sure that that can happen. Everything from monitoring a bounce house, which folks, that's not hard to monitor a bounce house, really. You're standing next to the entrance of the thing. You just make sure the kids, as they're going crazy inside, they're not hurting each other. Okay, that's the key. So you can do that. Uh, for other, there'll be greeters, there'll be other ways in which people can be involved. So go ahead and sign up for that. And uh, we're going to look forward to what God does to continue to further his work through us as we continue reaching farther uh, in, our, in our neighborhood and in our lives. Uh, you know, when you, when you build something, it's really important that you start with the foundation. At least that's, that's, what, I've, that's what I've heard. I've never really built anything. But I, have, I do recall times when I've seen what happens uh, when, when you don't. And one thing I'm really impressed by, as much as we've been praying for our, our you know, family, friends, and others who would be in Florida in that area, you know what's amazing to me is you've got 150 mile an hour winds and there are some structures that are just standing to it, you know? You've got these, I saw a concrete parking structure and these winds are howling by and this thing is like there. And I'm going, that, that's pretty impressive. Uh, why though? Because it was properly built. You know, there's codes, there's ways in which the foundations are laid, and it's really important. We find oftentimes when that doesn't happen, this is the moment where you see that. When the storm comes, when the storm hits, that's when the thing buckles, when it falls. And, and, and I think when we have been in the book of Hosea, what we're finding out and what we've seen throughout this entire thing is that there's something that has to be at the base of our lives as believers, and if this thing is not the foundation, if it's not at the base, if it's not what we're building on, we're going to find ourselves uh, buckling and caving in our lives. And that foundation is the grasp of the incomparable love of God. 
The love of God is an overarching reality that we're given throughout the pages of Scripture that cause us to see him and that cause us to live our lives in a different way and that cause us to recognize the massive work that he has done in Jesus to rescue us because we do not deserve his love. Now, the, the minute I say love, I get different responses from people. Some are like, oh man, you're being so sappy. Come on. Yeah, love, 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 right? Because it's, it's all over the, you know, the, the, the airwaves, the, every podcast, every song, right? I mean, remember years ago that song was written, I'm not gonna write you a love song, right? Why? Because the artist was pressured by the label. You've got to write us a love song. And she's like, I don't want to. I don't feel like it. I don't want to. So she kind of wrote this song of, you know, I'm not going to do it for you. Of course, that ended up being the hit song from the album, right? (laughs) But um, it's everywhere. And so because of that, the word love has been trivialized. It's been flattened. It's been kind of made one-dimensional into this sort of sappy, happy, just, yeah, you're wonderful, and so am I, and we should be together forever. Okay, it's more than that, much more than that. And we see this with God. Uh, Really, the fact that we have this thing called love at all is because our God is the God who loves. And it's deep, and it's full, and it's much more gritty than what's painted in contemporary culture. And it costs a lot. And it gives of self beyond measure due to care for or compassion for or mercy for people who do not deserve it. That's one of the biggest differences. Probably one of the biggest tragedies of how love's been redefined is really in our culture, it's I will love you as long as you treat me the way you're supposed to. You gotta deserve it. You can have my love, but you better earn it. You know, to quote another popular song from days past, what have you done for me lately? Ooh, 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 yeah. That was, that was the rest of the lyric. Anyway, you know, that, that is the, that's kind of the mantra. And that's what love looks like. That's what, that's what people do. But that's not love in terms of actual, real, genuine love. And so as we've gone through the book of Hosea, what have we seen? We have been told the story of Israel's unfaithfulness through the life of the prophet Hosea as a picture. And he was commanded by God to marry an adulterous woman. And you're going, God, why would you command a guy to do that? Well, because that's a picture, God says, of my relationship with my people. They are my wife, my bride. I am their husband. And they have run after other gods in adultery. And so... Gomer is, the, is, her, is her name. And, and as Hosea marries Gomer, she pursues her other lovers. And at first, they kind of enticed her, these other lovers. They would kind of woo her. You know, they would seduce her away. But then in their cruelty, they would abuse her. And eventually, they would sell her into slavery. And then Hosea shockingly goes to the slave market there. And he purchases her back. He buys her back. And then he, he, he doesn't simply have her live as a, as a purchased slave. No, he restores her to being his wife. And this is a, this is a vivid depiction of, of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. But really, it's not only Israel's unfaithfulness to God. Let's be honest. It's a depiction of our unfaithfulness to God. 
We are Gomer. That's us. We're so like Gomer. We are so like that adulterous bride who turns away from God's love to other lovers. And those other lovers end up abusing, end up breaking us, end end up casting us out into the slave market of sin. And we find also that Hosea has told us the story of God's judgment, God's judgment against Israel. And really, it's not only a judgment against Israel, it's really God's judgment against all of humanity because all of us have provoked God's anger. And God would come against Israel with the Assyrian army. As we saw last week, ironically, even as Israel longed for the east wind depicting Assyria, thinking Assyria would rescue Assyria would save them. And then God shows them, no, not, not only will Assyria not save you, in fact, that east wind is now coming and blowing at you and you will be destroyed by it. The very thing you sought deliverance from, apart from me, is the very thing that's going to destroy you. Again, that is so like us, is it not? The things we run after apart from God, the things that we trust in instead of God, are the very things that end up destroying us. God's coming in judgment against Israel, and God is coming in judgment also against the world. And yet, Hosea doesn't leave us there. Hosea is also the story of God's continuing, ongoing, faithful love in the face of the faithless provocation of his people. And so we see the heart of God exposed. And we find throughout the pages of Hosea that it's not this indifferent God. It's not a God without emotion. It's not, you know, sometimes people will talk about that. They'll talk about God as if he's like, well, he doesn't have feelings because feelings are so beneath him. No, God has emotions. They're just holy. That's the thing. They're different than ours. God does feel. The only reason you and I have emotions at all, again, is because we are made in his image. And we've got to be real careful we don't take our sinful emotions, and then go, well, then if God has emotions, he has to have emotions like us. No. When we live in the fullness of who God really is and what he's done in Christ and in connection with him in fellowship, when we're walking in him, our emotions then function the way they're supposed to more and more. But we find God's heart of love kind of unfolded here with raw, wounded, tender, passionate love for his people. He longs for intimacy with his people. And we find him as he is forsaken and turned away from, there is pain that he expresses throughout these pages. And so we find his love, his continuing, ongoing love. And I believe this is so important for us as we come to the end of the book. This is chapter 14. This... I look at this chapter, I'm like, Lord, this is why we've been in this book the whole time, all these weeks, right here. Because this is an unfurling, an opening of God's heart towards a faithless people in faithful love. And we must understand this. We must see his love. But the full-orbed, actual, real love that comes only from him. John Owen was a a great Puritan theologian and pastor. And uh, 
he, he, he wrote extensively on this, and he talked about how important it was for Christians to understand God's love. Back in the mid-1600s, here's what he wrote. He said this, How few of the saints are experimentally acquainted with this privilege of holding immediate communion with the Father in love. With what anxious, doubtful thoughts do they look upon him? What fears, what questioning there are of his goodwill and kindness. But the free fountain and spring of all is in the bosom of the Father. Eternal life with the Father and was manifested unto us. 1 John 1, 2. Let us then eye the Father as love. Eye the Father's love. As in look at God and see him that way clearly. Again, not the, not the kind of frou-frou, shallow version of that that comes out in contemporary culture. No, the actual full orb, deep, rich, true love that God gives us as his people. Many writers have since picked up that theme from Owen and have described at length how our, our problems, most of them, if not all of them, our frustrations, our anxieties, our fear, our temptations, they all stem from a dim or distorted view of God's love. And so when we leave here today, I want all of us to have a clearer picture of God's love. A deeper understanding of that. And I would love to see that then transform how we walk throughout our days. Corporately as God's people and individually in in each of our callings. Hosea concludes with this beautiful, striking picture of God's love in chapter 14. I ask you to go ahead and turn there if you would. Hosea 14. And uh, in honor of God's word, would you please stand and follow along as I read? Hosea chapter 14, verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again, our God, to the work of our hands. For in you, the orphan finds mercy. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would unfold these truths from your word to us, that we would understand you in a deeper way, that we would draw near to you, that we would see you as your word depicts you. And that your love would be something that would overwhelm us, your holy love. Grace us to be changed and cause us to become the men and women you want us to be before you, enjoying you, knowing you, walking with you, and also shining your light wherever you place us in this dark world. That others may see our good works and glorify our Father who's in heaven. We ask that you would accomplish this in the name of our Savior, the risen King, Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats.
So here's the surprising thing. When we actually really grasp God's love, you know what this passage tells us? When we really grasp God's faithful love, it awakens repentance. Huh. That's what happens here. God's described his love. God's shown his love. God's given them his love. God's expressed it in every way possible to them. He's pointed ahead to the Savior Jesus that would come to take his sins upon them himself. He, he, he points here ahead to that time. Oh, death, where is your sting? You recall a few weeks ago, we talked about that. Jesus is going to remove the sting of death. That's the answer. Will I ransom them, he asked. The answer in Jesus is yes. So he's pointing ahead to this the whole time. But we find here that as people actually grasp God's faithful love, it awakens repentance. And so for us, as we look at this, we're going to see genuine repentance means we need to respond in a certain way. Uh, Repentance means, first of all, we need to return. We must return. That's really what the word repentance means. It has the idea of I'm walking in one direction, I'm going a certain way, and now I'm turning around, I'm doing a 180, and I'm going to go back and I'm going to walk this way instead. And you'll notice in verse 1, it's a command. Return, O Israel. It's not an option. He's not saying, hey, if you think it might be a good idea, maybe you should consider doing this. No, he's saying, return. The things you are worshiping instead of me. Whatever those things might be, whether it's control over your own life, getting your way, you find yourself blowing up in anger all the time. That's idolatry. That's saying, I really ought to be in control of what's happening. In essence, every time, we, we have those outbursts. We're saying in our hearts, God, you messed up. I should be in charge. Or worse yet, I'm God. And when we repent of that, what are we saying? We're saying, Lord, forgive me for that. Forgive me, yes, for my outburst of anger. But more than that, forgive me for trying to be you. It's a return. It's turning around. It's going in the opposite direction. And you'll also notice it's, God's not kind of downplaying what's been going on. Look at the second portion of verse 1. You have stumbled because of your iniquity. That word for stumbling, that's like when someone's drunk. You know, if they've been just, they're completely hammered, they're walking down the alleyway, and they can't walk straight. That's the idea of stumbling. And notice why they're stumbling. They're stumbling because of their iniquity. That's the last word in that phrase. And iniquity is literally perversion. It means to take something and to twist it out of shape. So God's not soft peddling here. He's not saying, you know what? My love means I just look at you and I go, oh, you're not that bad. That's not God's love. God's love calls truth out. And God's love calls sin, sin. And so confession really here, this is a part of what he's calling them and us to do, is agreeing with God and to say what we've done is wrong. And, and he's also saying, look at verse 2, take words with you and return to the Lord. He repeats that phrase to return. And notice what he says. Say to him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. He's saying, go to God and ask forgiveness from him. Ask him for forgiveness. 
And maybe you're here today and you've never prayed before. Maybe you've never said anything like this to God. And maybe the whole idea seems kind of strange to you. But, but here's what we're learning from this passage. Speak to God. Go to him in confession and tell him, Lord, forgive me for the ways I have dishonored you in my thoughts, in my actions, in my words. That's your first step in, in, in coming to God. And, and, and here's the thing. If we're returning, if we're repenting, if we're turning away from something, we need to know what that is. And here the Bible would clearly tell us that. It's sin. In other words, it, it wasn't just a mistake. It wasn't just sort of like, oh, yeah, I didn't really know, and I kind of know. It, it's iniquity. It's a twisting of that which is good. If God's holy and if God is all good, and he is, then idolatry, worshiping something other than him, is a big deal. That's what's being said here. And the fact is, sin today, that word, that term sin, it just isn't popular. It's not a popular term, and it hasn't been for a long time. Uh, there was a guy back in 1973, 49 years ago, who wrote a book. His name's Dr. Carl Menninger, and he wrote a book, and the title of this was, Whatever Became of Sin? Question. He was asking that back in the early 70s. And uh, this is a long quote, but I want you to bear with me, because I think it's very, very important in terms of helping us understand some things. Um, and by the way, this guy, he's not a believer. At least he wasn't at the time he wrote this. Hopefully, he became one later. But this is what he had to say. Human beings have become more numerous, but scarcely more moral. They are busy coming and going, getting and begetting, fighting and defending, creating and destroying. They now communicate with one another in a thousand ways, swift and slow. They transport themselves rapidly on land, sea, and through the air. It became the epoch of technology, rampant and triumphant. We boasted of our inventions, innovations and gadgets, rugged individualism, acquisition, thrift, boldness and shrewdness were acclaimed as the great national virtues. Although hard work was admired, luxury and ease were inordinately esteemed. And as we appropriated and accumulated, we bragged and braved. Suddenly, we awoke from our pleasant dreams with a fearful realization that something was wrong. In all the laments and reproaches made by our seers and prophets, one misses any mention of sin, a word which used to be a veritable watchword of prophets. It was a word once in everyone's mind, but now rarely, if ever, heard. Does that mean that no sin is involved in all our troubles? Sin with a capital I in the middle? Is no one any longer guilty of anything? Wrong things are being done, we know. Tares are being sown in the wheat fields at night. But is no one responsible? No one answerable for these acts? Anxiety and depression, we all acknowledge, and even vague guilt feelings. But has no one committed any sins? Where indeed did sin go? What became of it? It's a good question. And as... We find here this call to return to God. For many these days, they would think more along these lines. What do you mean return to God? I never left him. So often people have taken scripture, even at times, and sort of just cast out the parts they don't like or they redefine different sections or different terms because it makes them more comfortable. But Hosea deals with this head on. 
Because here he is saying, if there is anything you love more than God, anything you seek for security, satisfaction, fullness, or hope other than God, you're worshiping an idol. And to love those things is to worship those things. And to worship those things is sin. And really the main way we would see and understand and grasp the gravity of sin is to look at the cross. You want to take sin lightly? The Lord Jesus himself paid the price. God himself came. He lived that life that we could never live. He lived perfectly obeying. And then he took upon himself voluntarily the penalty that you and I deserve. The sky went black. The veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. Only God himself could make a way. And he did. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. The promise, the hope, the grace, all that comes from that stems from the understanding that sin was a foe that had to be conquered and it was conquered, praise God, with great cost. And so here, Hosea is saying, say to him, take away all iniquity. Say to him, Lord, my perversion, please remove it. Cry out. Receive us graciously. By the way, gracious means, means we don't deserve it. That's grace. It's a gift. There's another thing that we find here in this confession, and it's found in verse 3, and it's this idea of of disowning every false security. That's a part of this coming to him and speaking with him. Notice, Assyria will not save us. What was Assyria? Well, that was the superpower of the day. That was where Israel went, remember? Longing for the winds of the east. So please, Assyria, you can rescue us from our dilemma. But here, what what are they saying? Okay, that is is an idol. We are not trusting in the superpower of our time to deliver us. We will not ride on horses. What's the idea there? I mean, some of you are going, what's wrong with riding on horses? I love my horse. It's not talking about that. For them, the horse was a means of military conquest. The horse was, it was a sign of military power. And so here for them, the, the, the horse is, is, uh, is symbolic of taking something that I would see as being powerful and arming myself for the purpose of accomplishing my goals. And so, again, most of us don't have a horse. If you do have a horse, you're probably not relying on your horse for your future. But, but, but maybe you could ask this question, you know, and, and we've asked these kinds of questions before. Fill in the blank. 
I will be really happy when blank. Or, or here's another one. My future will be secure if blank. Now, is, is God the center of the way you responded in your mind to those questions? Because let's face it, a lot of other things can hop into that blank, right? You know, we, we can say to ourselves things like, well, my life will be secure, or I will be truly happy, or, or whatever it is, when I get married, or when I get a job, or when I buy a house, or when I get the new iWatch, or when I get a new car, or when I save enough to retire, or when I, you know, pass my finals, or when I get that promotion. The question is, where are you placing your trust? The reality is Assyria will not save. I mean, consider this. Our final enemy, death. Any of those other things that we would put in the blank, those going to save us from death? No. So the call here is turn away from false security and turn towards God's almighty, ever-faithful, compassionate arms. Rest in him. Look at the end of verse 3. It says, we will not say again our God to the work of our hands. We're not going to do that. We're not going to make something, you know, as the prophet said in other places, right? Isaiah talked about this. You know, you take the wood, you make an idol out of it, you worship it, you take the rest of the wood, you cook your dinner on it. So part of it you're making your dinner on, part of it you're worshiping as a God. Really? So here it's say to God, Lord, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to live for the idols that I make in my life. But notice why. For, look at the last line of verse three. For, that's, that's an explanation. Because, you could say. Why am I not going to do this? Because in you the orphan finds mercy. That's why. Why would I go anywhere else? Why, why would I turn to another place? Interestingly, Israel was orphaned. But they were orphaned in a doubly tragic way. Most often, orphans become that way because something befalls their family. In Israel's case, she chose to turn away from her father. She orphaned herself. And yet, what does God do? In you, God, the orphan finds mercy. That's the tender compassion of a mom Nursing a child. That's what that word is talking about. That's what they find in God. So notice, I'm going to not say again, our God to the work of my hands. I'm not going to say that. Why? It's not simply because it's wrong. It is wrong. But that's not why. Why? Because of your overwhelming compassion and mercy with the tenderness of a nursing mom, with the compassion of a wise father. That's what motivates it. And that's a stunning thing to consider. 
the only way that we really find out God's love and the faithfulness of God is as we see him. And when we do see him, it awakens repentance, genuine repentance. And that really is an amazing thing to consider, considering how faithless Israel has been throughout this book. So God's fatherly love drives us to that place. By the way, this also is a complete reverse of what happened earlier in the book. Do you remember when Gomer and Hosea had their children and the names of their kids? One was Lo-Ami, not my people, and the other one was Lo-Rumah, which meant no mercy. And now what's happening? Those names to the people are now turned upside down. Those that were not his people are now his people. Those who received no mercy are receiving mercy. What does that mean for us? Look, all of us have been born to be God's children. All of us have turned away from God's love. And all of us have, in light of that, become fatherless. But here's what this passage says. No matter who you are, you can turn to God. Run to his fatherly compassion. And as you turn away from your sin and as you turn towards him, he with open arms welcomes you and says, you are my child. Turn to him today. So genuine repentance not only means that we need to return, but also we need to recognize. Recognize what? Well, we need to recognize who God is and all that he's accomplished. Notice what he says in verses four through eight. I will, by the way, how many times does God refer to himself and what he's going to do? I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger is turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily. He will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout and his beauty will be like the olive tree. His fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Those who live in his shadow will again raise grain. They will blossom like new wine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. You got to look at that passage and go, what is happening? This is, this is what we would call in Hebrew poetry an and what's more pattern. It's growing. You'll notice that it begins with God being like due to Israel. Uh, we live in a pretty dry place, but if you've ever been to Israel before, it is dry, okay? Dry. Uh, when you're walking around there, if you don't have your water with you, you will just turn into a, a, a pool of dust, pretty much. I mean, you've got to have that stuff with you. And so when you're walking around there and you understand when dew comes in the morning, they would actually collect that and use that to irrigate. They had large cisterns. They had ways of trapping water that were just ingenious. But that dew picture for them was like, wow, what a vibrant thing. Here we are, it's a dry land, and all of a sudden the dew in the morning comes and rests on the land and brings refreshment and life. And so he says, what's going to happen? Notice, you'll blossom like the lily. But you can see through the phrase, it starts to grow a little bit. Notice verse 6, then shoots are going to sprout. And then by the end of verse 6, you've got beauty like the olive tree, and then you've got fragrance from the olive tree. So it smells beautiful. And then by the time you get to verse 7, you've got the shadow of the tree giving shade, and you've got blossoms like the vine, and so you've got this fruitfulness that leads to wine that is enjoyed. 
as God's blessing. And so you kind of have, you know, starts with the dew, winds up with massive trees and wine. It's a powerful picture of just God's provision. And we've got to recognize that. You've got to see that. If we don't see God as the one who provides those things, we're not going to return to him. But when we do see him and we see his lavish care for his children, that means we can then repent. We turn away from the stuff that's masquerading as something that's going to deliver and we can turn to the real source of life, God himself. And, and, And it's also a very provocative statement God's using here because he's comparing himself in some of these phrases, with the same kinds of trees that had often enamored and captured Israel into false worship. And so the, 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 the trees referred to here sometimes would be the very places that Israel would go in order to carry out their, their immoral rituals like the Canaanites would. So God's saying in many ways, okay, those, these, these trees are offering you something. You got to realize that the thing that you were seeking there I'm the one that in fact provides that. And so God's actually taking Baal worship and he's subverting it. The blessings Israel thought would come from Baal in fact only come from Yahweh. They had hoped Baal worship would make them like Lebanon, which would be the place of fruitfulness. The trees there in Lebanon were famous. And Lebanon ended up being the home of Baal worship as well. But God's saying, all that stuff that you longed for, all that you were chasing after, all that you thought would fulfill you there, it's actually from me. And that's the thing. Do we recognize this? Do we actually see this? We must if we're going to genuinely repent. Think back to the ways you completed those sentences earlier. I'll be happy when, or my future will be secure if blank. God's saying, whatever you think those things will do for you, the house, the car, the marriage, the career, whatever it would be, those things will not satisfy in a lasting way, and I will surpass it because I'm only, I'm the only one, God says, who can make you flourish. There's nowhere else to go. And that's why he says in verse 8, look at verse 8, God declares, O Ephraim, Israel, what more have I to do with idols? It's I who answer and look after you. I am like a luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. What does that mean? That means whatever you're seeking, wherever you're seeking it, you are never going to find that because you weren't made for that. You were made to know God. That's eternal life. And Jesus came to bring that to you. And you need to receive that by faith. Trust him. Turn away from what you've been trusting in and turn towards him, knowing he alone can save What does that mean? Does it mean that you're guaranteed all those things that you wanted, health, happiness? That's really not what God's promising. You know what God's promising you? Something better. Himself. Him. 
What does that mean? Does it mean that then you go through your life and you don't encounter all these trials? No, no. you're going to encounter them. You will know them. But you are walking with him through those times. It could look like a lot of things. It might look like joy in the midst of suffering or confidence in the face of guilt. He's going to give you that. He's going to give you contentedness that's growing. Growing contentedness. He's going to give you freedom in, in, in the midst of times that feel like you're, you're being constrained. He's going to give you peace in the middle of, of times of turmoil. He's going to give you love in the midst of rejection. He's going to give you strength when you feel the most weak. But more than all of that, he's giving you himself to know him, to, to enjoy him. experientially to know him, to walk with him. And that's eternal life. And that's the beginning of the new creation. By the way, this world that's broken, this is what's being described here is when, when Jesus returns, when he comes back, when he comes to reign. This is, this, these verses anticipate that and point to that. So genuine repentance means we must return It also means we must recognize, but lastly, it means we must remember. Verse 9, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. The 14 chapters of the book of Hosea outline the many ways Israel repeatedly failed to grasp that Yahweh is the, the supreme creator of history and he is the one to whom all owe worship and allegiance and he is the one who also fills and satisfies and secures. But this is being written for those who come later, for future generations, for us. And the question is this, can we learn from Israel's example? Can we make different choices? In essence, this passage is saying this. What are you going to do with this message? It describes a different way of living. Notice it says, understand. Let him understand these things. But then look at the next phrase, let him know them. And then the next phrase, let the righteous walk in them. There's understanding. That's one thing. That's to grasp it, to get it. Then there's to know it, which means experientially to have internalized this and seen it and gone, yeah, this is how we need to live. And then to walk in them. How do you know it's going to happen? You're going to walk in a different way. When we, when we leave this place this week, It's different. And it's not different because I'm repenting because I'm supposed to. No, it's repenting because of God's overwhelming, faithful, mighty, sovereign love. And we talked before from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which is, if you'll recall, many, many weeks ago, we pivoted from 1 Corinthians 10 to here. And by the way, 
Next week, we'll be pivoting back into 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But you remember when we left there, we talked about there's always a way of escape for those who are tempted. And you remember how Paul laid that out? And we realized this. Every avenue escape from every temptation, there's a sign on the gate every time. And it says this. God is saying to you, I love you. That's how the door looks. Here, the motive for repentance, again, is God's overwhelming, holy, 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 sovereign, righteous, compassionate, merciful love. So when you're in the midst of that encounter, maybe it's a coworker. You know the coworker. You know what I'm talking about. The one that knows how to push your buttons. You know? They just have a way about them. And you know it. You, at first you kind of thought, maybe they just don't know that they come across this way. Now you're like, oh no, it's deliberate. Yeah, it's on purpose. In that moment, when you're ready to take just revenge, if we're living in light of these truths, it's no, Lord. My well-being is not dependent upon how this person treats me. My well-being comes only from you and your faithful, overwhelming, perfect love for me. So because of that, I don't need to take revenge here. Maybe your struggle is different. I don't know what it would be. But this is what translates into living differently. And it comes about because we grasp more clearly, always, in a growing way, God's love for us. Because when we really grasp God's faithful love, it awakens repentance. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you to help us to see these things. We thank you for Jesus the one who lived that life, the one who has conquered death, the one who has brought about our rescue, our ransom. And we ask that because of him, we would take to heart the message of Hosea. That we would have nothing more to do with the idols that so easily enamor us and pull us away and ultimately break us. All those different things that we long for, Lord, help us to see from you and you alone comes our fruit. And knowing you through Jesus Christ is eternal life. We praise you for this in his name. Amen.